Hello and welcome to Policy Pod, a podcast from the University of Southampton's Knowledge Brokerage Unit, Public Policy Southampton. My name is Giles, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of leading Public Policy Southampton, where we work to enhance the local, subnational, national and international policy impacts of research conducted at the University of Southampton. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Head. Michael is a Senior Research Fellow in Global Health at the University of Southampton. Before we start to talk about resin, let's pull right back to the beginning. What did you do for A-levels and what's your career path been like? Well, it's been a probably slightly strange career path, not your typical academic um, entry points. So for A-levels, I did biology, chemistry and geography. You asking me that question meant I had to sort of dredge it out of the back of my brain. I've not thought about that in quite a long time. Um, that was 1997. Um, so scientific A-levels on the whole. And then I went to the University at Portsmouth and did my undergraduate in biomedical sciences which was slightly by accident. I only ended up there because I didn't get very good A-level grades. I ended up with CDE. Uh, and to get into Southampton, where I'd applied, for biochemistry, I think it was. I think they wanted three Bs or something like that. So I did actually phone up Southampton in a not very good mood because I'd flunked my A-levels, in my, in my opinion, at that point in time, and said, will you still let me in? And the exact words of the tutor was, oh, no, we're not going down that low. So uh, that, 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 that wasn't the... Uh, most inspiring start to my academic career, really. Uh, but so I phoned up Portsmouth through the clearing process and ended up there doing biomedical sciences. And I think that was actually a fortuitous twist of fate that I did biomedical sciences. Portsmouth was actually pretty good for their science degrees. And biomedical science is a good degree because it gives you a very broad overview of a lot of different topics. You get to taste a lot of them, find out which ones you're most interested in. So there was, for example, microbiology, study of bugs, which I enjoyed um, and was ultimately a little bit prophetic in my eventual career choices. Um, there's, but there's, there's immunology, pathology, human physiology, biochemistry, that sort of thing. So you kind of get a little bit of a taster of it all. It was quite a laboratory focused degree. And I realised, actually, I hated laboratory work. I found it really, really dull. I just didn't enjoy it at all. What I did enjoy was going to, going to the library and looking up the paper books, as was the case back then, um, to sort of research and review the results and find out the whys and wherefores as to the, the results that we saw, which I now know is heading towards epidemiology, which I shall come back to in a moment. Um, from there, I did two or three years in project management administration within health insurance, um, within a mental health trust in northwest London, running courses there. And then I ended up at UCL in 2004. Uh, and again, as a project manager come jobbing researcher, my job title there was Network Manager and Research Associate, which is all slightly vague, but that's academic terms for you. So, so a juniorish researcher and mid-level project manager is probably my job there. And then I did start to, well, I studied a postgraduate distance learning master's in epidemiology. So I was really, I was finding that sort of topic really quite interesting. And I think it was only really at that point, mid-20s, several years, or mid to late-20s actually, uh, several kind of years into a career path, I really started to work out really what I wanted to do. So something I do recommend to A-level students or undergraduates, for example, that you, if you don't know what you want to do yet, it's fine. You've got plenty of time, plenty of options to have a look at what's out there, have a go at a couple of jobs, see what sticks. Um, so I was at UCL for 11 years, 2004 to 2015. Um, in 2015, I was fortunate enough to win a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to talk about resin, which we'll cover in this podcast. Um, and at that point, I moved to the University of Southampton, 
um, was based within, I'm still based in the Faculty of Medicine. I was then based in Clinical and Experimental Sciences. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I moved to the Clinical Informatics Research Unit. Uh, and along the way also, I did a degree, a PhD. Uh, I completed that in 2016. That was with the University of Amsterdam. And again, it was kind of a distance learning type PhD. They call it a PhD by published works. Essentially where you write lots of scientific papers on a topic. Mine was on the research investments work that I do. Uh, and that forms the basis of your degree. You kind of build a thesis around it. Um, and I finished that, like I said, in 2016. So that kind of completed my academic set of qualifications that I need. Um, and put that title of doctor in front of my name that we seem to need so much in the world of academia. So that's a, a kind of a potter's summary as to where I came from and why I'm here now talking to you. So you mentioned resin there. What does it stand for? What does it do? So we all need acronyms in research and university life. Resin is short for research investments. Well, short for research investments, really, but we spun it out into the full title of research investments in global health study. So I mean, a long time back when I was at UCL, we started just to map who was doing what in infectious diseases in the UK. There was no real good data set on that. We kind of thought, don't people know this already? But it turns out not. So we started to try to pull together some funding sources um, or data from funding sources as to what research has been funded in infectious diseases. So we put together these data sources, looking at how much funding was spent on each different bug. For example, how much funding is given to HIV or tuberculosis. Uh, we also looked at the type of science that was funded. So is it preclinical research in a laboratory or is it a clinical trial or a public health study? And we also looked at who was funding it and where the funding was going to, which institutions were doing it. And whenever I presented this at a conference or even on our website, it got a lot of attention and people were really engaged with it, describing it as powerful data. So I thought, can we start to do this properly? So I was able to uh, engage a couple of students, in particular, uh, my now long-term friend and colleague, Joseph Fitchett, to try to disentangle this. It was a lot, I mean, probably thousands of hours spent staring at incomplete spreadsheets. It was very dull work at times, it really is. But you get to the end point where, for example, this year, uh, well, no, last year, apologies, um, October last year, we published a uh, data set covering the world of infectious disease research funding, which looked at $105 billion of funding across about 100,000 studies. We described it in great detail. And that was published in Lancet Global Health. So when you kind of get to that sort of point, you're looking at some really quite exciting and potentially impactful results. It is useful data for priority setting, for knowledge transfer, for policy makers. It's useful, for, for example, for the World Health Organization. They look at who's doing what in R&D and what they should advise priorities to be on next. Funders want to know what everyone's doing so that they can prioritize their own topics within their own particular remit. And if they need to commission bits of research, then knowing that there's portfolios of work being done at UCL or at Harvard or wherever it happens to be then they've got that knowledge as well. So it's been well received by pretty much everyone we sent the research to, which includes European Commission, Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who funded us to do some of this work, uh, the UK government, World Health Organization, lots of people like that. So from the kind of the seedlings we planted at the start, where we're just playing with some very incomplete data looking at the UK landscape, we managed to expand it to a global setup. Um, 
a set of the data sets to enable us to do that have evolved over time to make it a little bit easier, but it's still quite a manual tool through the uh, through the data sets, particularly with the categorization process, which is not straightforward and difficult to automate. So Resin gives great information about where the gaps are in terms of funding. Is that the key insight to a policy audience, being able to consider where future funding should be placed? Yeah, it's certainly one of the key outcomes for us. And I think certainly the people who receive our work, that's one of the things they like to see. So we can present how much data there is on funding for HRV versus tuberculosis versus malaria. Um, but often one of the key factors, as you said then, is kind of how little funding there may be for certain disease areas. So, for example, one of the areas that the Gates Foundation were keen on was to explore pneumonia. They reckon it probably was very underfunded compared to its burden of disease. Um, and our data did pretty much prove that. If we look at the levels of investments against the burden of disease over different time points and also different types of burden of disease. Some diseases kill a lot of people, but there's high mortality. Some diseases, such as one of my other favourite bugs, which is scabies, a skin infection, doesn't kill many, but it's seriously unpleasant to have. So you use different burden metrics to more reliably assess how much scabies there is, which would include things like disability-adjusted life years, DALIs. Um, there's also things like years lived with disability and years of life lost as well, which measure things, slightly different things in terms of the overall burden of disease. So I think that these different measures compared to the different levels of investment gives decision makers like funders valuable information to inform their thinking about what is well-funded, what is not well-funded, and what they should be funding next. So in early 2020, Resin is trundling happily along, unaware of what was about to happen. How did the learning from Resin pivot towards a COVID response? Well, it was a fairly straightforward transition. Having got these kind of methods in place, we could simply adapt them to the, the, the funding landscape as it changed, and it has changed radically over the past 12 months. There's no doubt whatsoever that other areas of health will have suffered hugely in terms of a lack of research over the last 12 months, and probably the next 12 months as well. We're in the process of quantifying that, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but so the methods we had in place could simply be adapted to new funding decisions as they emerged. And certainly funders have got, uh, got their act together a little bit better than even a few years back in terms of publishing their decisions in relatively speaking real time. So there's the UK CDR, the Collaborative Development Research uh, sort of consortium, who represent a few of the global health funders. They've been publishing data on what's been funded on COVID. There's also Dimensions, which is a private sector database we have access to that we use a lot to pull out relevant data that we do searches for. So in terms of one of the things I've been doing during the pandemic is using Resin to look at what's been funded for research purposes. And a lot of it is vaccine research, for example, as you would expect. But we're able to look at the levels of funding for things like behavioural and social sciences, which is important. We need to know and predict how people are going to behave with certain levels of interventions, how those behaviours differ across populations, whether it be populations within the UK, for example, um, or populations across different countries. There's lots of different types of research that is crucial to filling urgent knowledge gaps. So through Resin, we've been pointing out a little bit where the knowledge strengths appear to be, where the results are likely to be coming from in the very near future, and where the gaps may be. So that research is ongoing. We've got a, a few thousand awards analysed already. We've got a few thousand more that we need to analyse over the next few weeks. So we will update our website 
and we will con- we will publish another peer review paper on that at some point in the first half of 2021. But getting our findings out there in as near real time as possible has been key for us. We've been putting it on the website rather than holding on to it until we publish it somewhere so that that data is open access and available to whoever wants to look at it. That's great. And we'll put links to the resin website in the show notes so that people can find out more information. So in addition to the mapping profile of COVID research funding uh, during the last 10 months or so, presumably you're mapping the reduction for funding in other areas as well, things that would have previously been investigated of which resources have been diverted away from. As part of COVID recovery, this will be incredibly important for donors and for funders to be able to consider which areas need money fast. Yes, absolutely. So we are doing that. I can sort of reveal some provisional results on that, but the work is ongoing, so I haven't got anything definitive. But we've looked, for example, at the UK research landscape and the NHS as one area. Um, and we reckon about seven out of 10 ongoing studies across all the NHS were paused or cancelled altogether because of COVID. Partly to direct research resources towards COVID-19, but also simply because the NHS needed all the resources it could get. So, for example, research nurses were um, taken off studies and put back into clinical practice, rightly so, of course. Obviously, all of that will have a big impact upon areas of health. We're trying to quantify which areas of health are likely to be most impacted. It might be that, hypothetically, cancer is less affected than stroke research. So the knowledge gaps that appear in one, three, five years' time in stroke might be more stark than there would be in cancer research. That's an important thing for funders to be able to know about so that they can anticipate this and allocate limited research resources as wisely as possible going forward. In terms of those, that seven out of 10 number that I mentioned, we think about six out of 10 studies were pause, but about 10% of NHS research was cancelled altogether, which is a fairly hefty amount of research. We are doing some more work just to dig into that and to find out more precisely what's going on there. And alongside that, we are looking at the UK and global picture around a few key areas of health, which includes cancer, mental health and stroke and dementia. And we want to see how funding decisions changed over 2020 and certainly the early part of 21. What we think we're seeing is that across the first quarter of 2020, even though there was a pandemic in place, funding decisions had already been kind of made or lined up. We haven't seen too much out of the ordinary there. But as you go through 2020, we're starting to see lower levels of what we might expect from funding into cancer or mental health. So we'll be able to quantify the likely knowledge gaps, which will be valuable for UK and international funders um, and also the stakeholders such as governments and World Health Organization and so on. So we're trying to use this data for public good to kind of inform long-term outlooks on health, particularly with a focus on commissioning research. So we've seen a really challenging environment for charity revenue raising. How do you see this feeding into charity funding for research? Yes, absolutely. So we have seen adverts on UK telly um, from Cancer Research UK and probably other charities as well, basically pointing out that their funding streams have been hit badly and that if you can give generously, then please do. You can understand the uh, intention on their part to try to claw back some of their lost income that they anticipated having this year that they could spend on research. And there'll be lots, many, uh, lots more smaller funders who do great work, maybe just funding a few pilot studies each year. But from 
a small amount of funding, you might get some really good new knowledge that might build into bigger collaborations uh, and sort of further bigger pots of money down the line. So I think we might see a lot of that kind of pipeline of research drive a little bit. So we might find that, for example, early career investigators are hit a little bit who would have gone for the, the 10 grand grants, the 50,000 pound grants, that sort of thing, which may be less widely available right now and in the near future. So research careers will be hit as well as knowledge, you would imagine. That will be important for people to try to quantify the impact of that as well uh, here in the UK and elsewhere. And certainly there are still in theory in place government targets for spending a lot more on R&D in the UK in the future. And we really hope that that does remain the case. Uh, whether it will do, particularly as the kind of the full economic outlook of the UK becomes clear as we emerge from the pandemic. Who knows what will happen in the future, but funding for R&D and funding for the bigger and smaller charities is hugely important to keep that flow of knowledge coming through and to keep improving population health across all areas. So away from COVID and indeed the UK, I know that you do a lot of work throughout the continent of Africa. Can you tell me a bit more about the engagement that you have with partners in government, academia and indeed communities? Yeah, so a key example would be, I say, Ghana in West Africa, where the majority of my research is based and the majority of my links are. Ghana's an English-speaking country. Um, it's peaceful, stable and democratic and is a long-term collaborative partner of University of Southampton. We've got many, many links there. And we've held a couple of Ghana-themed events at the university over the past few years, and they've always been really well attended. We've had 100-plus people turn up to see what we're doing in Ghana. So my research is predominantly around sort of public health and infectious diseases and a bit of epidemiology. So one example of links with policymakers from the research angle is the scabies research. We finished a scabies study in Ghana. It finished last year. Uh, we had a end of study meeting to talk about the results in Accra, in the capital of Ghana. Through my engagement with policymakers over the previous four or five years, we invited a few people from Ministry of Health from the Gar senior colleagues of the Ghana Health Service. Scabies is a neglected tropical disease, an NTD. So we had one of the key people from the NTD office in the Ghana Health Service. We also had the head of informatics in the Ghana Health Service. He basically runs the IT system that links all of the Ghana Health Service together. So with key people like that in the room, we highlighted the results of our scabies study. We had some dermatologists in Ghana and specialist doctors in African countries are fairly rare. We had three dermatologists in the room, which I think is about 15% of all the dermatologists in Ghana in that room. So we had significant expertise there talk about skin infections and through that we were able to persuade the Ghana Health Service and the Ministry of Health that scabies should be made a notifiable disease. So COVID problems aside, Ghana is now counting scabies, which believe it or not is quite a rare thing in any country. We don't count it very well in the UK. So the fact that scabies has to be counted is what we call a notifiable disease. It's something that has to be reported centrally. The fact that it has to be reported in Ghana is quite an advance in terms of just finding out how much scabies is out there. Because that's something we really don't know around the world at all. So Ghana is actually pretty much leading the world now in that quite niche area, but an important area, important area of health. And that's predominantly due to our study. 
which was done in full collaboration with Ghanaian colleagues who led the implementation of the study. They massively contributed to the design of it. We had a study meeting at the start of the project before anything had happened, and they greatly informed how we should do things. And I think that's been key to my approach is to learn from them as much as possible, to try to avoid perfectly blunt the colonial type mistakes that we've made in the past in terms of us Caucasians running to sub-Saharan Africa with our Panama hats and khaki shorts and telling them we know what's good for them. So I think listening to the Ghanaian partners has been crucial. Listening to their Ghana Health Service, the Ministry of Health, has borne fruit with impact from that study. So we developed the policy links over a few years. We went and met them in their offices, which they appreciated. They're very keen on meeting people in person if they possibly can, just to kind of get an idea as to a sense of what you're about and who you are, which you can't easily do on email or even by phone. And we've held training events in Ghana as well that, again, Ministry of Health people have come to. Um, training on how to use research to make policy decisions, in fact, was one of them. And we also held a priority setting workshop where we invited Ghanaians and Kenyans to come to Accra to talk about priorities across four or five different areas of infectious disease research. One of which, as it goes, was research during a public health emergency. And this took place in 2017. So it was hopefully potentially useful knowledge coming from that that's informed their pandemic response. But there's a few things that we've done in Ghana that I think we've done quite well. From my point of view, I'm quite proud of it. And I think the Ghanaians have appreciated our input, which has helped them. And I think the top level policymakers in the ministries and in the health service have also engaged with and appreciated our efforts too. And how is it that you use the goodwill that you've developed with colleagues in African nations to support the COVID challenge? Yeah, so I think in terms of getting research off the ground quickly, having these established research relationships in place has been crucial, both within the health service and within the policymakers. So the study that we've got going at the minute in Ghana, which is funded by University of Southampton, is looking at three different aspects, one of which is conversations with policymakers. So we've got a colleague called Kachaf Satengble, who runs a think tank called Pax Africa, who is our main link there. He is very good at engaging with policymakers and translating knowledge into policy-relevant findings. So he's been having about... 10 to 15 different conversations with, again, Ghana Health Service, ministry colleagues, um, advocates who are in the country, directors within the health service, so district directors, for example, to find out how it's been for them. What have they lacked? What knowledge have they lacked? What are their priorities going forward? Those sorts of questions to inform our thinking for current research, but also future research questions that might emerge over the coming weeks and months. A second part of the study has been population surveys in Ghana and also Togo, in fact, as well, which borders Ghana, also in West Africa. And we carried out a survey of, from the Ghana end, about three and a half thousand people responded. We did it through Facebook marketing, so that will have biased our response rate a bit and the type of people who did respond. So mostly educated people who speak English, essentially was kind of the demographic we got. So we're lacking on the truly rural populations. But in terms of what we found out, we asked them about their knowledge and attitudes to COVID-19 and also the impact of it in terms of their financial 
well-being, their mental health? Have they lost their job? And also be asked a little bit about, would you take a vaccine if one was available? And if not, just one question on why not? So we did get a little bit of insight into likely vaccine uptake and also the presence of certain conspiracy theories that are prevalent everywhere in the world, but often they will be more prevalent or specific to certain areas. Especially in Ghana, the key one is this um, 5G conspiracy theory, uh, which is fairly prevalent in Ghana. So we found out things like that through the population service. We've done the same in Togo, and we just started to look at the results now. We've got about 2,000 responses there. So we've got decent response rates, which is nice. So again, that data from Ghana has already been sent to key decision makers. There is a Ghana COVID-19 steering committee with a high-level, national-level committee. We know a few people on it. So our results have fed into their thinking. We know that, which is good. The third part of the study, which is about to start, is surveillance. So most people in Ghana have a mobile phone. Most people don't have a smartphone. It's what we in the UK would call a slightly old-fashioned type phone. What you can do on those phones is you can punch in a number and then press buttons on the phone to answer questions. A bit like we would do in the UK if we're topping up our phone. We dial the number and add credit. It's kind of that sort of process. So I'm working with some Ghanaian informatics specialists who have set up a platform called Opine World. And this, they've set, this involves them setting up a phone number. People can dial it free of charge, and you don't have to have credit on your phone, so it's free to the user. There's a few questions about COVID-like symptoms on there. So you can report, for example, if you have a loss of sense of smell or taste or a new cough, things like that. And the idea being that if in the four districts where we're doing this, too urban, too rural, if there's a batch of responses, batch of calls from a particular area where they're reporting COVID-like symptoms, then that's useful real-time information for the public health directors and teams to consider and to work out whether they should head over there to run a few tests and try to work out what's going on. So it's kind of a feasibility study. So you talked lots in the academy about hard-to-reach groups. How does this work in an African context? How do you get people to be able to participate in the original work? So there's going to be some widespread marketing, which will include word of mouth, which is quite a strong way to communicate messages in many countries, certainly within sub-Saharan Africa. So they're big on their WhatsApp groups. So we've got posters and messages that we sent through WhatsApp groups. When people go into a health centre for any reason at all, whilst they're waiting there, they will be encouraged to get on their phone and dial the number um, and answer the questions. There'll be posters around the districts and also posters and communications through things like church groups and utilising trusted individuals like the local religious leaders. And there's also, we might call it a town cry here in the UK, where somebody basically goes through the streets, often in Ghana, on the back of a truck with a loud stereo in place so they can kind of bellow out messages to the public. We're going to try and engage with all of those kind of methods to get awareness out there that there's this number to ring. Because you're right, it's a useless project if no one knows about it. It relies on responses. So through those kind of approaches, we hope to get as many responses as possible. I think a minimum of a few hundred would be nice so that we can at least test the feasibility of such a system from both the general public angle, but also the health director's angle as to whether they think it might be a useful addition to their kind of armoury in tackling outbreaks. 
But yeah, so that's some technology that we think is appropriate for the Ghanaian setting. It doesn't use apps or something like that, which would restrict its usage to maybe some urban areas. And it, again, it's been designed very closely with all the Ghanaian stakeholders. And Opine World is a Ghanaian-owned platform as well, so there's a lot of trust there amongst other stakeholders who see it. But certainly, I see my role as kind of facilitating it and letting it happen rather than trying to drive it through myself. If I, I'm, I'm not best place to do. The Ghanaian is the best place to do that sort of thing. So yeah, so we've got this research on going, which I think is quite exciting. We've also actually got a project about to start. Also, I'm excited about is on um, the presence of long COVID in Ghana. There's a lot of good data on patients who've had COVID-19. So we're going to pilot it initially with a few hospitals, where essentially they will phone up patients and basically kind of ask them a few questions, essentially saying, how are you now? Have you returned to your baseline health? Whatever that was before you had COVID. So there's a lack of data on long COVID from resource poor settings. So it'll be one of the first data sets in the world. So again, I'm quite excited to get that research going and try to make that data available to Ghanaian stakeholders, but also our other links around the world. So Michael, how did this start? Was this something that was generated from the Southampton side or has this come from Ghanaian colleagues? I think it's probably me that triggered the, the conversations. Essentially, COVID was happening. I have research in Ghana. There's a pot of internal money here at Southampton that can be used on global health type projects. So how can I best support the pandemic response? And obviously using my existing links is, is the main key there. So I had conversations in particular with Dr. Lord Boateng, who was a visiting post within the unit where I'm based, the Clinical Informatics Research Unit. But he also was a director in the Ghana Health Service, where we've had some of our research take place. So he also knows a lot of people. Lord is a very good person to know because his network is wide. So he brought on the Opine World colleagues. I already knew Kudshaf Satengble and knew his role in policy translation. We've worked together a bit in the past. So we brought a few people together to talk about what might be feasible in a very short period of time, particularly given lack of ability to travel. So the population surveys were done in Toga by phone and in Ghana by the internet. So no travel needed. The conversations with policymakers, again, done by Kachafs on the phone or via WhatsApp. And the surveillance thing is something that can be mostly done remotely, entirely done remotely, really. Uh, there'll be a certain level of population movement around the community anyway. But our study doesn't exaggerate that movement or require movement on the part of us involved in the study. So the results get uploaded online and that's where they are viewed. So we're looking at research that could be done urgently, quickly feasibly and at a distance. So through the discussions that we had, again, my key question to the Ghanaians was, what's feasible for you right now, given these constraints, but also these opportunities? And that was the kind of consensus as to what we could do quickly and easily with the amount of money that we could get. The combination of a lot of different factors that have led to some early results that we've uh, put on our website and sent to stakeholders and some ongoing research that we will report on in the next two or three months. So it sounds like a great body of work and some really strong relationships have been developed. So let's step out for a moment and look back towards that early career researcher. What's the single piece of advice that you would give about all of this policy engagement work? I think I would say the old adage that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, particularly where there's word of mouth dissemination, there's a chain of command uh, that you speak to, whether it be in the Ghana Health Service where someone like Lord has connected me to so many useful people, or through the World Health Organization, where you get to know one or two people who then cascade your profile and reputation onto others. So I think 
from my early days at UCL, my role really was to help others develop collaboration. So I was the kind of person who put people in touch with each other. So I think that skill, being able to reach out to people, have a five minute conversation with them at a conference, might not be valuable right then. You might have a nice time, say goodbye and pass your merry way. A couple of years later, you might need each other to find each other useful. And you've had that introductory chat, you've already broken the ice. So I think making the most of your contacts is something that people probably don't do as well as they could. Uh, I think I'm probably a bit better at it than most, but I'm, I can do much better um, with, with some areas. I'm quite out of date with who's who in the European Commission at the minute, so I kind of need to update my knowledge there. But it's also where units like yourselves, the Public Policy Unit, are so valuable in terms of creating and generating those links, because that's where you get the most research impact, is if you can make a difference with policy as well. That's brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us, Michael. My pleasure. If you want to find out more about resin, the links are in the show notes. In the meantime, I've been Giles. This has been Policy Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and recommend wherever you get your podcast. It really does help to make us more visible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the patience, perseverance and positivity of Teo Kuriaki in Public Policy Southampton, Kate Briggs-Price and Ben McQuig in Keep Busy Productions. Our music is by University of Southampton composition student Paul Forster. If you want to find out more about our work, you can find us on Twitter at Public Policy UOS on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash public policy UOS and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash showcase forward slash public policy UOS. Until next time, goodbye.